Hi, everyone. I'm Scott Branley. And I'm Alicia Coakley. Every member of the church has a story to share, one that can instill faith, invite growth, and inspire others. On today's episode, we're going to hear how, despite being surrounded by childhood trauma, one woman's seeking heart taught her to trust the Lord no matter what. Welcome to Latter-day Lights. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Latter-day Lights. We're so glad you're here with us this Sunday afternoon, and we're really excited to introduce our guest, Deb Fryer. Deb, how are you today? Good, thanks. How are you guys? We're good. We're tired. I was just saying, it's a sleepy Sunday. (laughs) Everyone's going to be wondering where Alicia's eyeballs went. They want to go back to bed, (laughs) so they're little today. (laughs) I'm the opposite. I'm feeling great because I got to, I got... Another hour and a half later in church, so yeah, thanks yeah. to the new year. That's always nice. I wish, I wish the uh, the ward I'm in would change, but we won't change. We never change. Oh, we never change times, so we're always going to be early morning. <laughs> but at least we didn't have to get up and shovel snow. I have to say, I'm still part of our ward page, Scott, from back in uh, in Rockcliffe. and I saw that they had had to cancel church, and everyone was encouraged to grab a shovel and go shovel someone's driveway today from all the snow. So I'm like, well, at least I don't have that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That doesn't happen in Texas. <laughs> yep, exactly. It doesn't happen so in Miss Arizona Deb. either, does it, Deb? Yeah. Pardon? Snow? You get, you oh, get I'm snow? in Yuma, Arizona. We never have snow here. Yeah. <laughs> it's 70 degrees out there right now. Is it really? Wow. Well, maybe a bit cooler because the wind's blowing. We had a bit of rain this morning, which was nice, but. Yeah, it's been kind of chilly lately, you know, more like 65, but uh, when it gets to 70 here, everybody puts their coats on. It's freezing. (laughs) People are swimming at 65 in Utah. (laughs) Summer's boiling, Um, you know, you can't go outside in the summer, it's so hot. Oh, wow. Well, that's okay. You can stay indoors. We were just commenting earlier about your beautiful... Um, display. Do you want to tell our guests what that is? I've never seen this well, before, but it makes my heart happy. <laughs> because of my pitiful health, um, I eat a whole food plant-based diet. So I have to have lots of grains, beans, vegetables, and I my fridge is just full of vegetables, nothing else. So Nice. And I do have a garden that is, my, well, kind of not this year so much. Um, here in Arizona, there is no soil. It's just mm-hmm. sand. So um, I have built beds. I pulled up all the bricks in my backyard and I built um, beds and I've made my own compost over the last, I've only been here about four years. Wow. So this year, I don't know, I, I tried to plant earlier, like in October, which is still hot here. Um, and it's seeds. You just put seeds in the ground. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of them got baked in the sun. It was still it was kind of cooled off in September quite a bit and it kind of lulls you into, into false sense of security. And then you get blasted again with like three more summers, you know, Yeah, summers coming. So I think a lot of my seeds got baked and it's just been a, a nightmare. And then these little bugs came. Uh. It's like, if you build it, they will come. I mean, I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Nobody here grows any vegetables where I live. And, uh, 
they're just eating everything and they're just no. you can't even see them with the naked eye and then you Darn. water and they fly up and like what mm. so yeah it's it's a learning curve i'm from yorkshire england we have real soil over there yeah <laughs> so yeah. And so this this display behind you is is your food storage, correct? This is ongoing eating. Yeah, it's food ongoing. storage. Now okay, buy in gotcha. bulk. I buy in bulk from Winco Foods. I love Winco. Buy the sack, you, you know, many times. There so I go. fill them all up and then, you know, get more. So I love it. Yeah. And it's so all artistic. My cupboards, all my cupboards in the kitchen uh, and behind me in this buffet, they're all full of jars of food. That's awesome. Yeah. And some of your own when the bugs don't eat them and the sun doesn't Actually, <laughs> most of mine go into the fridge. So I, Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. So I, I usually grow greens, lots oh. of different types of greens, kale, cabbage, collards, you name it. I grow it. And, That's but awesome. this year, not so much. I, I should have mm -hmm. just put beets in because they're doing great. Uh, carrots, I don't eat a lot of here, but I did put a few carrots in. Never done those here before. Um, wow. yeah, I'm a big beet grower. Love the beets. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for, good for the heart, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm in, I'm envious. I can't, I can't keep, um, fish or plants alive. I can keep kids alive. So I feel like, you know, there's that, but I don't know where I get this I, from because I, I haven't been yeah. a gardener till I retired. Really? So there's I've hope for never, me. I've never done gardening <laughs> in my life because I, I never lived down anywhere I could have a garden. Okay. This is the first time that I've had. Wow. Well, not the first. Well, that's time. inspiring. Then living in, I lived in Idaho for four years, and I had it. I had a tenth of an acre there. Mm. That's where I. That's where I learned to garden by 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 experience and awesome trial and error. <laughs> that's awesome. Very cool. Awesome. Well, Deb, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm from Yorkshire, England. Post-war baby. Um. Uh, born in Leeds, which is also a mission, the mission in Leeds. And um, uh, I'm the second oldest of nine children. My mother had 13 altogether. Three of them died and one of them was adopted. Wow. So um, I was raised with, with just the nine. So I'm the second oldest. Um, and they say the second child is the rebel and that's basically what I turned out to be. <laughs> yeah. But not a rebel in the bad way. Right. Rebelling against what wasn't what wasn't right, basically gotcha. what was going on. So oh. so I became this kind of from a very I mean, my mother used to say that I was an old soul. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I'm I would describe myself as a sober child. Gotcha. extremely sober inward looking introverted um would rather be sitting by the fire reading a book you know mm -hmm. um and from a very young age um questioning everything mm -hmm. everything gotcha. around me yeah so gotcha it's been quite wow. a journey <laughs> i'm still well, trying to find all the answers <laughs> <laughs> aren't we all awesome. so what yeah. brought you to the u.s byu okay okay i came to byu in 1988 on a master's program without a bachelor's wow and we're going to get into that a little bit in your story today yes. correct um okay no, because that's after i joined the church so 
Oh, okay. So maybe yeah. next. So next yeah. time, spoiler alert: Deb's maybe. coming on for a second episode. <laughs> yeah. So I was okay. very, very blessed. I, the The Lord told me to come here, and the and the way was opened up, and the people at BYU were completely receptive to the Spirit and gave me a free pass, and everything awesome. was paid for. It was amazing. Wow. Talk about miracles happened. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So you went from from wet and green to dry well, and hot. In, I lived in London for eight for eight years. Well, six years in the church before I came to America. So uh-huh. um, a lot of concrete, you know, buildings. Mm. And oh, okay. Um, but and not so much green, except for parks, you know. Yep. But um, yeah, I I was I was absolutely. I mean, when I saw those mountains. <laughs> I couldn't believe them. It was some good ones. Never seen mountains in my life. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Very cool. All right, Miss Deb. Well, with that, why don't we go ahead and have you um take us back? Where does your story begin? Well, it begins when I was born. <laughs> because <laughs> when I was six years old, my mother told me about my birth. I guess me and my sister were asking her questions about it. And uh, she said to me, well, I had one pain at 2 a.m. at the hospital and you were born at 10 past two. And when the nurse brought you to me, I said, that's not mine. (laughs) And the nurse said, Mrs. Turner, my name was Turner. Mrs. Turner, this is the only child born here tonight. I assure you, this is your daughter. Uh-huh. She said, well, I'm no oil painting, but I don't want anything as ugly as that. Take it away. What? Yeah. Wow. No, your mom told you this? Yeah. Oh. Sorry. Um, so I grew up from that moment, thinking I didn't have friends because I was ugly. And I actually found out years later that I was suffering from mental illness and I was severely depressed. Mm-hmm. By seven years old, I was severely depressed. So dialing back to my birth, um, and I know I'm, Many people don't remember their babyhood, but for some strange reason, I do. And I had an experience. I don't know if you've heard of a pram, like a baby carriage. Uh Okay. Back in the 50s, women put their kids outside. They they stayed in to do their housework, and they stick the kid outside in a stroller, a a pram, uh, in all weathers to get some fresh air. Um, wow. And you're sitting out there, and you, you know you've got a hood up. There's a hood on them. There's a little shield. You you've got reins to strap you in. And, you know you're you're in warm clothes and blankets and everything. But you're sitting there by yourself. You know in this little <laughs> cubicle, um, looking out onto brick houses, um, cobblestone streets were then they were not paved until the sixties. Um, and uh, very gray skies. 
Mm. And I remember I was sitting. I must have been about six months old because I was sitting up. And my sister and a couple of young children in the in the street were sitting on the bottom step. We had steps that led up to the front door, and then there were steps that led down to the cellar kitchen. And they were all sitting on the steps crying. Their noses were running, you know. Uh-huh. And I'm looking at this scene, and I said to myself, and I mean, I know for a fact that children think in words. Because I said to myself, I didn't come here for this. Wow. I remember I could take you, if that, if, if that street was still there, and it's not now because it was all knocked down, um, the M1 motorway was built, and that is the start of it where I lived. Um, mm. so everything was knocked down. But I could have taken you to the very spot where I remember thinking that. It's wow. like it was yesterday. And uh, I don't know why I thought. It, it's just everything seemed very bleak. Mm-hmm. I, I just, all I can think is that being fresh from heaven, I was thinking, whoa, where are we? You know, yeah. what's going on here? And, of course, in my family, my mother was psychotic. Mm. I mean, she was, I know now she was definitely bipolar, um, definitely narcissistic, uh, possibly borderline. I don't really know what you would, you know, say what the what the diagnosis would be, but she was a raging aholic. Mm. So she was always on the warpath, and you had to watch it. You couldn't be anywhere near her if she was. So, and my dad was a more placid, you know, person, uh, browbeaten, I would say. Um, and her, she ruled the roost. And uh, mm. I describe my upbringing as like being in a concentration camp. Because that's what it was. I had absolutely no choices whatsoever. None. So I felt trapped from a Mm -hmm. very young age. And I just want to tell you that I know that Heavenly Father knows who we are. Because he has helped me every step of the way to get out of there and to be healed. Mm-hmm. Still working on it. Um, so uh, I'll go forward to when I was about three years old. I was an extremely small child. Now I know it's because I had serious thyroid issues and I didn't grow very big. Um, and they come with the territory when you've got mental illness. Um, and uh, when I was about three years old, four years old, in that same house, um, I I had a book. Um, it was an annual of a, a wonderful character that I used to read in comics, mostly reading pictures when I was little, but um, it was called um, Rupert the Bear. And mm-hmm. they put together this annual every Christmas, you know, for people to buy for the kids. And I got this annual for Christmas, and I was just, I loved it. I carried it everywhere. And I couldn't find it. 
one 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 night when I went to bed, I couldn't find it, and this was just on my mind. And I woke up in the morning thinking about it, and the spirit said to me, "Go to your parents' bedroom. It's at the bottom of the bed, in the in the in the footboard." Hmm. I mean, it wasn't even words; it was just like an image. I think right. so I don't remember words spoken. It was just I knew I had to go do this. My parents were already up. The bed was made, so I climbed on the bed and I felt down at the end of the footboard, and there was the book. Hmm. So that was my kind of first intimation that somebody was was directing me, and I didn't even think about who it was or what it was. I had no clue. <laughs> and then fast forward to um, we moved from there, so everything was being you know demolished. Mm-hmm. Our family was growing, so we moved to another house, and this house had a front street and a back street. The house I was living in was is what they called a well, I don't know if it wasn't a back to back, but anyway, there were the house I was born that I lived in uh, pre about age three. We had an outside toilet in the mm-hmm. yard, like. You pulled yeah. the string. You sat on a you sat on a wooden <laughs> toilet seat. It was spidery and scary and cold. Oh. Uh, and we had a bath in front of the fire on a Saturday night. Wow. That's what British people used to do in those days. You just had a bath on a Saturday night, and that was it. <laughs> wow. So we had we had this tin bath in front of the fire, and you'd fill it with you know pans of boiling water, and everybody would use that water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were the days. <laughs> Time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we're in this new place that actually has indoor plumbing, which is nice. And um, my mother, being very volatile, had a fight with somebody in the street, a neighbor that she didn't like. And we lived kind of about two thirds of the way down the street, and this neighbor was right at the end. So we were, we were like closer to her, probably about 10 doors away, maybe less. And the back street, both streets were cobbled. And the back streets are very narrow streets. And the front streets were, were wider. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a little backyard with steps going up to the, to the back door. And uh, I remember after this big fight my mother had big you know just shouting match in the street I uh, had to go to the shop for my mother she they would send children to the shop in those days who were five six years old which is about how old I was about six um, and you know the shop was like a block or so away but in those days there wasn't a lot of traffic you know I think my dad was the only there were only two or three people in the whole street that had a car then um, and my dad had a van for his his work, his business. Um, and so I had to go to the shop, and it meant walking down this back street past this woman's house. And I was kind of terrified at what, you know, some, that somebody might come out and talk to me or shout at me or something. Mm-hmm. As I was walking past the house, I looked up at the door, and I said to myself, and I can tell you, I, could, I that street is still there. I could take you right to the spot where I thought this. 
I thought, why do people come here if they don't like it? Hmm. And I didn't mean to the neighborhood. I meant to earth. Mm -hmm. I didn't know why a six-year-old would, I mean, I didn't question why I thought it at the time. I question it now. Why would I think that? Yeah. Um, And then I got... And you... You didn't grow up in the church at all or anything like that. So this oh, is I like your parents didn't teach religion. you no, no, no. about any of this I stuff. I never so, had a prayer with my family in my life. Yeah. So you didn't know about God. You didn't know about Jesus. Well, I knew know. about the Bible because my mother had a Bible in her drawer in her bedroom. And mm-hmm. she once brought it out. And I think she she read it or just showed it to us. But it wasn't something that happened. My mother was raised in the Church of England. She okay. left the church at 16. Her parents were separated when she was 12. Her mm-hmm. father was a absolute nightmare. I, I'm sure he was bipolar. Now that I've studied my own and, you know, come through my own illness, uh, which was bipolar disorder, um, I've traced it back. And uh, with different things that people have said to me about family members, I know it's all in the family for sure. And every one of my brothers and sisters is suffering in, in one way or another with depression, anxiety, different things. I don't know what level of you know Ill, illness they had, but um, my mother was definitely very, had massive mood swings. Mm-hmm. Um, so her mother, somebody wrote me a letter once and told me that her mother was very depressed. Now, I didn't know my grandmother, uh, she died in 1950, um, but and I never met. I ne- so I never met her, and I never met my grandfather. Um, so I don't know them. I, I was raised without any extended family whatsoever. Mm. So my mother had two brothers. Never met them either. Um, so you know, it was a very insular family, and it was like you don't, you know, you don't tell anybody what's going on in, in this house, you know. Mm-hmm. So things you know hunky-dory on the outside <laughs> you know? I mean we were all well taken care of we're all clean and, and fed you know right uh, but emotionally mentally we were de- we're all destroyed I mean my brothers and sisters are suffering massively because of what mm-hmm. you know so I can see I, you know I can see why the church is teaching that families are the most important thing and that love in the family is the it's the it's the bedrock of society mm-hmm. so um anyway back to this going past this house and thinking this thought and as soon as i thought why do people come here if they don't like it then i heard a voice and the voice came in my mind said when you're 30 everything will be all right. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't wait to be 30 years old. <laughs> and I was only six at the time. Wow. So I went through, you know, I got through my childhood. I was the first person in my family to go to grammar school, which is a very big deal in those days. Um, when you're 11 in England, you take something called the 11 plus exam. And out of 60 children, there was only five of us that passed that exam and went on to grammar school. So 
your grammar school starts at 11 and you go there till you're 18, um, providing you get through your O levels in the sixth, in the um, sixth, sixth form? No, fifth form. Um, so, you know, you're in forms over there, not great. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the fifth form, you take your O levels, which are called, which, which were then ordinary level exams, they call them. Most people took, you know, five, six, seven subjects. Um, and you have to have five O levels to get into a college. Uh, I mean, to, I'm sorry, to move on to, to uh, the sixth form, where you then take A levels, which are advanced level courses. And usually t most people take two or three really brainiacs, maybe take five, um, and you two years there, and then you're applying to colleges. So mm -hmm. so I was the first person in my whole genealogy to go to grammar school. Wow. And my mother said to me, she's, she basically said, you're just like a sponge. I mean, I was like this kid that was so, like, wanting to know everything I read everything I could get my hands on. I, I poured over, I mean, you didn't have to tell me where things were in in uh, in Canada, Scott, because I already knew them on the map before I came to America because I wow. studied maps, I studied encyclopedias. I mean, I read everything I could, like all the classic books I could get hold of in my childhood. Um, in fact, my dad... He was a painter and decorator, painting houses and for quite a long time. And, and he had customers that had, um, like one had a set of children's encyclopedias that were illustrated and he got those given to him and, the, and I was the one that was always in them. And then another customer had like this whole set of brand new classic literature, like 40 books or something. Wow. And I was the one that was always reading them. So, you know, I was just like devouring stuff. And my mother just called me a sponge. She said, you know, you're just this walking sponge. And I wasn't very, I wasn't very brilliant. It's, I mean, I was, I was smart as a, in elementary or primary school. I was always top of the class there. But when I got to, to grammar school, I struggled. And I know now why I struggled, because when you're mentally ill and you hit puberty, that's tough. Mm -hmm. Because I was so I was severely depressed. I remember my school photograph was I looked like the most depressed in the whole class that first week mm -hmm. of school in this great big building that, you know, was scary and, you know, new school and, and I had to travel on a bus by myself. You know, you didn't get a bus to pick you up, a yellow bus at the door. You get your bus pass and you walk three blocks to the bus stop and you're on your way and it takes, it's like several miles away. Um, so it was a big school, you know, only 500 girls, but my, my elementary school, my primary school was a lot smaller than that and was much more homely. And I, I really liked my primary school. But I did grow to love my grammar school, um, but it was it was hard for me to to be in an institute, a big institution, um, and I guess that's you know people with bipolar disorder. It's very hard for them to be outside the home, even a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. You want to be sheltered. You want to you know protect yourself, and 
it can be hard. It can feel very isolated and lonely in crowds. You feel very lonely. Mm. And then if you're not doing well at school, and then when I was 13, I got mononucleosis and was off school for a whole term, semester, um, where I couldn't even read a book. I wasn't allowed to. And I would sit day after day in front of the fire on my own. My parents were at work in a dark kitchen. This is in the winter um, with no one to talk to. And just I just had to sit there with nothing to do. So I became increasingly depressed. And then um, when I went back to school, I couldn't keep up with everything. I was just, I was devastated because I couldn't, it just wasn't, uh, nothing was gelling, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did end up dropping a few subjects when I was, when you're 14, you kind of choose your subjects for O-level. One of the subjects I had to choose from (laughs) was religious education because in those days, Everybody had religious education in schools. Mm-hmm. Everybody said prayers in the morning. We had assemblies. We had opening hymn. We had a message, a spiritual message from the headmistress, a, a little talk maybe by a teacher. We sang hymns, I mean, closing hymns we, and prayers. That's where I learned religion was in school. Mm. So thankfully, I was exposed to the Bible And because of my studies, I had to have a Bible. So my mother bought me a little Bible that I kept by my bed, and I read that thing every night. I loved Mm. it. I loved the Old Testament just as much as I loved the New Testament, and I found out that I have major Jewish background. So Isaiah speaks to me. (laughs) Um, So I I love the Scriptures. But when my teacher, Miss Webb, her name, this very thin-lipped, pasty-faced uh, spinster, called me forward to the front of the class to talk quietly with me and say, you know, I, I, was I going to continue with this subject as an O-level? I said no. And she said, why? As she obviously thought I had some kind of, you know, penchant for, for religion. And I looked at her and I wish I could meet her today because I would (laughs) repent. (laughs) And I said, because I don't believe a thing you're telling me. Wow. Now, that's not what I meant. I believe I love the Bible. I believed Jesus was I can't say Jesus was the Christ. I believe he was a real person. And I believe he had a father called God. I totally believe they were two separate people, that they were real people. I mean, I'm a very kind of, I'm a very kind of basic person. It's like I believe things, you know, it's like um, I, I, I'm i literal. I'm, I'm a literal believer, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And if you tell me that, that Jesus Christ did this miracle, I believe it, right? So I have this believing it was the way it was taught, this dry as dust, you know. And as a little child, I had a couple of friends in the street that took me to church with them a couple of times. And I loved it because, you know, in those days, you dress up with your little, you know, you had little white gloves on and your little white handbag and your little white patent leather shoes <laughs> and you just trip off to church, you know. And you sit there on this pew 
and you listen to this vicar or whoever they have at the front. And I remember thinking to myself as like a six, seven-year-old, well, if this is religion, you can keep it. I remember thinking (laughs) that when I heard this sermon because none of it made any sense to me whatsoever and it didn't Mm. didn't inspire me. So I kind of, you know, made it through my teens by the skin of my teeth, Um, got my O-levels, stayed on in the sixth form, and came time uh, to choose uh, what you're going to do with your future. And my parents went to probably the only parent-teacher meeting they ever went to um, to decide this. And um, I decided, I didn't know what else to do, that I was going to be a secretary. Now, I don't know why I thought that, because I absolutely hate typing. (laughs) I've never never liked that. But I'm a good assistant. I like helping people. I like being, I don't like being number one. I like being number two. I like being the supportive role. You know, I'm not a lead. Mm-hmm. I don't consider myself a leader. Um, if, I, if I was called to any leadership role in the church, I'd probably pass out, you know. Um, but I've always been a teacher. I love teaching. So, um, so I, um, my parents had this conversation with this teacher and she was, she was a French teacher at the school and she wasn't my French teacher, but she had substituted once when I was to give a talk. Uh, we, we were assigned a, any subject we wanted from France. I loved the French language. I was the French speaking champion of Yorkshire when I was 14. Wow. <laughs> I got, a, I got a prize and everything. Yeah. So um, I, I am an auditory learner. I hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it made me a good reader at a young age because uh, I could hear the sounds. And um, when I hear language, like I, I'm a good copycat, you know, I can. Mm-hmm. And I love the French language. Um, so this teacher, uh, she had been substituting for my teacher that was off sick um, when I gave this presentation about Renoir, the artist. I was, a, I was a serious artist from the age of 10, uh, and that's what I ended up doing in college was fine arts. Mm. So um, I always was drawing from life all the time. And uh, she said to my parents, she, could, she should not be a secretary. She'd be a complete waste as a secretary. She's a born teacher. And it was mm. from that presentation on Renoir. It's like a 15-minute presentation. I don't even remember it, but, you know, I remember standing there scared to death, but um, (laughs) I guess I did well. Um, And the funny thing is when I was in elementary school and primary school, I I didn't know why at the time, but they picked me, this little introverted, shy girl that never spoke to anyone. They picked me for the lead every year in the school play. Hmm. And now that I'm a grown-up, I know why. It's because I was a good reader and I could learn the, the lines. <laughs> but I was petrified on the stage. I was like this massive nerve, you know. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, so I stayed on in, in, in school, uh, got my A-levels, and I wanted uh, – I knew. I knew when I went to Roundy High School at 11 
I knew that's where I wanted to go. And sure enough, that's where I got in because you have choices. You have several school choices. That was my first choice. I loved Roundy High. It had a good reputation. Um, I was also an avid, I became an avid tennis player and they had tennis courts all around the school. So um, I lived on the tennis courts whenever I could, you know, and play times and stuff. Um, and so um, uh, got to having to choose where to go to college. And so you called up to outside the library, there's these tables covered in uh, books uh, about different colleges, you know, prospectuses. And there's the, there's the one right there. And it was Bath, England. Now, if you've ever seen Persuasion, the movie. Yeah, Jane Austen. That's what I was thinking when you said Jane that. Austen. I worked in an office in Bath, several doors from her house. Wow. I was an architect's secretary at one point. Anyway, so... Um, I told my parents I wanted to go to Bath. Well, that was 300 miles away. Yorkshire, Leeds is in the northeast. It's the frozen north. And uh, Bath is in the balmy southwest. No snow, plenty of rain in the fall, green mm -hmm. as the absolutely beautiful, lots of hills. And the architecture is, there's nothing like it. It's wow. beautiful, honey-colored limestone. Um, if you've ever seen pictures of Bath, the big you know, semicircular um, streets, and there's one called the Circus, which is completely circular, which I love. That is in Persuasion, I believe, that circular street. It's got a big mm -hmm. tree in the middle. The office I worked in was just down from there, and Jane Austen's house is just further down the street. Nice. So I loved Bath, but my parent, my mother, did not want me to go. And she wanted me to stay home, go to college from home in Leeds. So I was kind of, you know, you don't cross your mother, not when you've got a raging, psychotic mother. You don't, you don't speak back to mm -hmm. her. You do what she says. So I did my best um, to accept that. But then the spirit worked on me and said to me, no, you must go. Mm. And I just, I stood up to my mother and said, I'm going, I'm going to Bath. And that was the end of life as I knew it, because I went through another 10 years of absolute hell, of severe oh. depression. Um, feeling, You know, I'm from, you got nine eight siblings, you know, second oldest. I mean, I was used to being the mother hen to all these young little kids. Um, I, I was raised, I mean, children today, they do not have an idea what it's like. I mean, I was raised, I, I used to clean my mother's house on a Saturday morning from top to bottom. This is five bedrooms, three floors from mm -hmm. top to bottom every Saturday from the age of 14 to 18. Mm-hmm. I used to have a latch key from the age of nine. I let my brothers and sisters in. I cleaned the house before my mother got home from work. I, I lit the fire. I, I vacuumed. I made tea for my brothers and sisters. In those days, we had sandwiches for tea because mm -hmm. we, we would have um, a, a cooked dinner at school every, every day. And that, wow. But my parents only had sandwiches at work, so I had to cook dinner for them at night. 
So I did all that, and that was from like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon uh, till 6 at night when my mother got home, by which time my brothers and sisters were all in their pajamas ready for bed. Mm. And that was my life, was I was this, you know, housekeeper. Um, and then I had to study every night from 7 till 9, doing my homework in the, in the dining room all by myself, very isolated. And I might get a little bit of TV in before I went to bed. Um, so I went to college and it was, you know, it was scary because I, I didn't have this big group of people around me, even though it wasn't a happy group. Um, it was scary. But I, I loved bath, which really compensated for it. Um, I ended up having m many more traumatic experiences that I won't go into detail in. Um and uh, didn't know, had no idea that I was suffering from major depression. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I made it through college. It was actually a teacher training college where I was an art major. Uh, so you're you're doing an art major, but you're being a te you're, you're learning to be a teacher along the way, uh, okay. going on teaching practices and things like that. And and I did elementary school teaching. So uh, I love teaching, love children. Um, the problem is I couldn't take the stress. Mm. I didn't know why. So I never became a school teacher. So mm. a lot later, that came later. But um, it was very, very, um, it was just too hard. It was having all those bodies coming at you all the time and parents and other teachers and yeah. all the red tape and everything was just, it was too overwhelming for me. And I didn't know why. I didn't know. And I had this, I just kept having these feelings that I, could, I couldn't do things. Like I, I couldn't plan anything. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, look ahead. I couldn't look to the future. I was barely like hanging on by my fingernails every day trying to survive. And I, I was in Bath one day walking down the street and I had this feeling like I was walking in a bubble all by myself. I just felt so lonely. And, mm -hmm. and I felt like that my whole life. I felt lonely in my family. I felt completely isolated, even though I was surrounded by people. Um, I felt lonely at school. I felt lonely at college. And um, I had a... The worst experience of my life was when I was 24. And that was the biggest shocking experience of my life when I had a child born dead. Mm. And I'd been married. I married at 20. I, you know, I was so lonely. I probably just accepted him because I was, I needed somebody. Mm -hmm. and um, little girl I was just shocking and I became even more depressed mm -hmm. but this is where the life begins because out of that ashes I had even more direct help from God 
And I moved out of that apartment. I had all, I had this apartment all ready for the baby. I was divorced. I was separated, um, planning to have the baby. And um, I had it all fixed up nicely and everything. And I just... I actually went. I actually went to my parents for about six, seven weeks after I stayed with my parents, and it was it was like being in a nightmare again. I couldn't handle it. Um, and my my doctor, our doctor, family doctor, I was I became so depressed. I couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. Uh, I just felt this stress, like I'd mm-hmm. never had before. And he threatened to put me in a psych unit if I didn't take antidepressants. Wow. So I took this antidepressant that made turn me into a complete zombie without any feelings. And I got to a point where I just couldn't take anymore. And a friend of mine called me from Bath and asked me how I was doing. And I said, not very good. And he sent me some information about eating natural foods because he was in, I didn't know that he was into all this. Um, you know, I didn't know the extent of it anyway. It was called macrobiotics back then. And uh, he sent me information, and this information just spoke loudly to me. And I threw those pills down the toilet. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and um, my mother went berserk. And I booked, a, I booked my passage back on a bus back to Bath. And um, got back to Bath, was completely depressed. And um, some friends of mine lived just up the street from me, were leaving their apartment, and uh, I applied to, to take it over from them. It's one of those great big Georgian, if you've seen, um, um, what's, the, what's the movie, Jane Austen? Um, no, the, the one we just talked about. Um, oh, Persuasion. Persuasion. I think it's Persuasion. Yeah, and they're in the big, like the big drawing room type of room. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what the rooms are like. They're very big, tall ceilings. Mm-hmm. So I got this apartment, and it was very. I mean, I have no furniture hardly, but um, mm-hmm. but I'm sitting in this in this apartment, and I'm 25 by then now. I think 24. Um, it's a few months after this happened, and I was. Um, painting uh, I was painting a tapestry canvas I had I had a friend lived in the old apartment block uh, house uh, she was from America actually and her husband was English and she would design needlepoint tapestry need, needlepoint you know I don't know what you call them tapestries uh, that you sew so she would do the designs on them and she'd do a whole bunch of them and she needed someone to paint the colors. It was like painting by numbers. Oh, okay. So I'm sitting painting uh, the, one day. She was paying me to do this because I couldn't work. I was too depressed to work. And she was. I was painting this little canvas in my living room. And it's a bright, sunny morning. And as I'm sitting there, and of course, you know, I'm a, I'm a, trained oil painter you know painting by numbers coming down in the world um and i suddenly said to myself what am i doing with my life and 
that's when my life changed because God spoke to me and said, someday you are going to travel across America cooking for people. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, where did that come from? And um, one thing led to another. I ended up moving out of Bath, moving to London, which I hated, but I figured if I was going to work, because Bath is a very seasonal place, there's not a lot of work in, you know, year round. It's a tourist mm. trap. Um, so I moved to London and uh, I got a job typing, which I absolutely <laughs> abhorred. Um, but I didn't know what else to do. And I was working in this typing pool that I was, I, I mean, I was suicidal. <laughs> that, that, that to me is like, if you want to make me suicidal, just put me in a typing pool with yeah. women, women bitching at each other all the time. <laughs> you, know, like, unless, you know, every time somebody left the room, they were talking about them. You know, it was just scary. Um, I just couldn't handle it. But um, anyway, I did, I did different, you know, temping jobs. Um, and then one day, uh, I used to go out on a Saturday and I would go to different like little markets, street markets, you know, and there was a market at Camden, Camden Lock in Camden town that I wanted to go to. So I went, got out of the tube station and as I'm walk, I'm walking down the street towards the market on my right here is a restaurant called Sunwheel. It was a macrobiotic restaurant. Mm-hmm. which I'd heard of it, but I didn't I'd never been there. I looked in the window and there's a little card saying help wanted. Weekend help wanted. So I went in, got the job on the spot. It meant I was working seven days a week now. Um, I started washing dishes and within five months I worked my way up to being the night cook. Because people leave, you know, restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so I, I was there, I don't know, maybe a year or something. And the people that ran this restaurant, who were the managers, were Americans from Boston. And they were having a baby. And they wanted to have the baby in America. So they gave up their job. And they said to me, if you ever come to America, come and stay with us. So fast forward, a friend of mine who was a baker, he baked at the East West Center. He ran the bakery there. His name's Tony. Um, was leaving the East West Center. The East West Center was the head of the macrobiotic community. It's, a, it's the uh, headquarters, you know. There's one in Boston. There was one in London. So um, he said, I'm leaving. Uh, why don't you apply for my job? Wow. So I went had an interview with Bill Tara, who was American. He was over there just uh, running it for a while. And I got the job on the spot. And uh, the challenge to me was I want you to change this food in this, because there was a little cafeteria. There was a shop next door owned by the man who owned that Sunwheel restaurant. And there was um, a little school in the basement, uh, a little preschool, and uh, there was a bakery upstairs. This is a big old school. It used to be an elementary school. And they 
rented it and converted it. And uh, so there was a kitchen and there was a bakery. And um, I became the manager of this whole shebang. I mean, <laughs> the bakery, the kitchen, uh, I oversaw the meals in the, in the basement for the children and in the snack bar and did all the buying and, you know, for hiring and firing. Um, I was, what, 26 then, 27 tops. And um, first thing I did was fired everybody because nobody was working. Everybody was just like, these are a bunch of like very liberal, you know, hippies that are just like taking their sweet time, you know, taking all morning just to prepare one salad, you know. Um, So I I basically over a few weeks got rid of everybody, brought in new people that I knew and the place was transformed. I mean, it was filthy when I, I mean, I had to, I'm a detailer. I'm a, I was a professional organizer. Mm. Um, So I'm a detailer. And of course, coming from a big family where you had to be organized, I was the cleaner of the family. So I knew how to clean. Um, So I just, I just whipped the place into shape, got rid of everybody and, uh, and, and made it a viable business and um, they were impressed I, and I have no business experience whatsoever. So um, anyway, um, you know, get to a point when you're doing these jobs in cooking that you've ha- you, you kind of reach the ceiling where you mm-hmm. can't be any more creative than you're being, you know? And so I decided to um, start my own business and all I had, I didn't drive, I didn't learn to drive till I came to America. Um, I had a bicycle and it had no gears. And I rode that bike to work every day, six miles and six miles back in the traffic. It was insane. I don't know why I was doing that. Uh, it's not nothing healthy about sucking in those car fumes. <laughs> um, so I, um, I decided to do this. And, at the, and what, what, what had happened in the meantime was that I was living at the house of the people that owned Sunwheel Restaurant and that shop next door. Uh, Peter was English and Kim, his wife, was American from L.A. Mm -hmm. So um, they asked me if I would move in with them, I could have the spare room. If I would clean the house once a week, that would be my rent. So I had a free place to live. And they were so accommodating. Now, he was great, Peter. He was an architect by trade, um, before he started, got into the whole food business, he was a, a great businessman and um, great cook. Him and his wife were great cooks. And they were so accommodating, they let me do my um, my business in their basement kitchen. And it was be- he had completely remodeled this house. Um, it was beautifully done. And they let me use this kitchen, you know, and I, there's jars everywhere. And they didn't mind at all. And I'd be driving around London with my basket full of jars to different whole food shops. It was, it was insane. <laughs> um, but I got experience. And at the same time, I was doing uh, catering. I started mm-hmm. my own catering business, catering for weddings and parties. and uh, Everything was from scratch. So I... I would hire a bunch of friends if I couldn't do it all myself and we would, you know, do an event. So um, I got known a little bit by the macrobiotic community in London and um, 
these people from the West Country, right near Bath in Bristol, uh, were visiting and met me and said, would you like to cater our wedding? So I took a team of people down there, three or four people with me, and we put. it took three or four days to cook it all and um, put on this huge spread for these, this couple. And um, they had a natural food store and next door to it was a delicatessen and they asked me if I'd like to run it. Wow. So I said yes, because I just wanted to get back to the West Country. But what had happened was that I had um, met somebody in London. I knew him as a friend. He was in the Macaba. He was actually the first tofu maker in England. Uh, he's now got a fantastic business. He's very well known throughout the land. Um, but he was just kind of, you know, young then with his business. And um, uh, he had separated from his uh, girlfriend. They were living together. They had a child. She had left him. And we ended up um, falling in love anyway. So uh, we got engaged. And uh, within a few weeks, the engagement was over because she threatened him. If you marry her, you'll never see your son again. So I was devastated and I had, I'd gone to Bristol and I had come back to marry him and it all fell through and I had nowhere to go. So I took out a map of England. I put it on the floor and I looked at that map and I felt like I didn't belong anywhere there. And I was back. I went back to Peter, Peter and uh, Kim's house. They let me come back. And uh, Peter said, I have a friend, and I knew this friend because he, he, all these macrobiotics around the world, they come to England, London all the time. And this friend of his was in British Columbia, and he said, uh, they're looking for somebody to manage their business in British Columbia. Why don't you write to them, and I'll give you a, a reference. So I did. And they wrote back, and they offered me the job. In fact, they called me and offered me the job. And um, I basically, within a few weeks of that engagement breaking up, I was on a one-way ticket on a plane (laughs) to Boston. Because my friends in Boston, I contacted them. They said, come and stay with us. Now, this was in August, and that job wasn't starting till May because the mountains are all snowed in you know, in British mm-hmm. Columbia then. Mm-hmm. And this was a, this was an outdoor, uh, this, this experience was like, it was like teaching people how to live outdoors and forage food and, and, and eat wild food and, and take care of themselves in the wild. And I would be on the team that, you know, I would be heading up the team that provides them their daily meals, you know, while they're foraging mm-hmm. weeds, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, um, but I had this, I am Mrs. Little House on the Prairie. All I wanted was to build my own house, grow my own food, make my own pottery, and be self-sufficient, self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had been writing to a couple of men from England to America. Uh, one was in Boston, but had land. I wanted to meet somebody that had land in America, you know. Um, one was in uh, 
in LA, in um, California, Northern California. So I was writing back and forth with them and uh, got to meet the guy in Boston. Anyway, so August the 6th, 1981, I was on a plane on a one-way ticket. I sold everything I owned and I had $1,800 in my pocket. And off I went. I'd never been on a plane in my life. None of my family had ever been on a plane. Um, never been. Well, I'd been to France once for the weekend, but that was it. Um, and um, uh, got a taxi from the airport to my friend's house, Jordan and Sue. And the first thing Jordan said was, I'm going to start a catering business. Do you want to help me? Because his wife had a baby to take care of and she couldn't work with him anymore. Mm-hmm. So that was my first <clears throat> was working with him, making food at home and taking it to people. Uh, so he was a great cook. They were both great cooks. So they re- they taught me so much, just like Kim and Peter had, you know, taught me so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first job. Anyway, um, there was, you, you know, when, you, when you're in the macrobiotic, biotic community you know you get to meet all these people and um this one guy i met said he was going to connecticut for the weekend did i want to go just as a friend you know there's no romantic attachment or anything Mm -hmm. Uh, and i said yes so he was driving down there so off we toddled to connecticut and um landed in middletown connecticut beautiful little town um, and he dropped me off at these girls where I'd be staying for the weekend, and they made futons, cotton futons, um, for a living, and they taught me how to do that. And and then they took us out to dinner that night to these uh, guys who owned a restaurant, macrobiotic restaurant. And right next door was this brand new. I mean, you talk stainless steel to a cook, you know. All stainless steel, deli, unused, ready to go, and they wanted it to be. They were going. They were planning it as a tofu delicatessen. So they'd make tofu on site, and everything on that was sold would be made from that tofu. Well, after hearing my story that night of what I'd been doing in London, they offered me the job. <laughs> so many opportunities i was gonna say like just one after another after another i was taken aback frankly but as soon as they said as soon as they asked me i i just knew i shouldn't do it Mm. i just felt no inside me and 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 to kind of buy time i just said can i take a few days to think it over and get back to you because I didn't, I didn't know why I was saying no, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, got back to Boston, talked to Sue and Jordan about it, and I said, "Why don't you do it? Why don't you guys do it?" And that's what they did. They ended up moving there, and I, it's the perfect place to have a family. It's a really pretty little town. Um, I just, and the the only thing I can say is, the only way I've ever been able to describe this is I felt like I had this rope tied around my middle and somebody was pulling me west. 
Hmm. It wasn't go west, young woman. It was somebody was pulling me. It was that feeling that I wasn't in the right place. So I, this guy I'd been writing to, I, um, uh, you know, we'd become friends and uh, he was going out to his land, which was in um, Missouri. He had a part of a 40-acre parcel with some other people that were all trying to live self-sufficiently. And he took me out there, uh, bags packed. I left Boston. Uh, we'd already made arrangements with the family there um, to host me. Uh, and the deal was that if I cooked for their family, I could stay with them. So there's my second job, cooking for people in America. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't cost me a penny to get there in gas. <laughs> nice. Um, and, um, in fact, all the way across America, I didn't pay a penny's worth of gas. Wow. Or fares. It was all paid. So here I am in Missouri, and I found Missouri a very interesting place. Mm -hmm. I... I... I have this feeling about places and people and things. I It's like I feel the spirit of a place, you know? Mm -hmm. And I felt that Missouri had a very negative spirit. Mm. I felt this kind of almost like a barrenness there for some reason. I didn't know. Um, but this farm was in a nice spot. Um, it's kind of central, central, more southern, I think. Uh, Missouri, and uh, this couple were a, um, they were a religious couple, but they didn't go to church, and um, they were using, reading some alternative to the Bible, I don't remember what it was, but um, uh, he, he wasn't a very happy man, he seemed quite kind of depressed. Uh, his wife, they were very artistic people and they were running a business making these beautiful little dough ornaments that were little people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just beautiful, detailed, and they'd paint them. So my job was to take care of the children and, you know, help them, you know, while they were working in, the, in this business. And while I was there, um, his wife was... Um, she was she wanted to make porcelain dolls so she started making doll heads and firing them when I was living there and I was just there for a few weeks um she is now the one of the foremost doll makers in America wow that's cool yeah and um after I joined the church I wrote to them and told them and she said well, funny you should say that. I'm from Ogden, Utah. <laughs> and I was a member of the church. I was raised in the church. So they were thrilled. She was happy for me. But oh. So these are people that had lost their way. You know, she'd lost her faith and mm -hmm. children didn't have any, any upbringing in the church. Um, but nice people. Um, so I stayed with them for a few weeks and um, – they had a little one-room schoolhouse on that property, painted red. Um, and uh, their school teacher 
um, had left and they didn't have a teacher. So they asked me if I would run it. <laughs> and I and I said, okay. So I cleaned out the school after, you know, it was after the summer. So it was like September, late September maybe. Yeah, about September time. And um, there were about 11 children on that property. And the parents were all, you know, pretty hippie types mostly. This couple I stayed with were the ones that were the most stable. They were living in like a double wide trailer, you know, uh, with a porch. And then we, while I was there, we actually helped do their house raising. I helped with the house, in you know, the frame, raise the frame uh, one Saturday, I think it was. Um, so they were building, they were building their own house. Um, and um, I, you know, I really loved this, this little job with these children. And um, every week we took them to Columbia, Missouri, to the library. And one day when we took them to get books, I, I smoked then, by the way. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, I was a little addict back then. And um, yeah, my parents were smokers. So, you know, <laughs> a lot of secondhand smoke as well. Um, so uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like gagging for a cigarette. So I went outside and this library, it's like this um, brick building with two wings out this way. And then there's like doors here and then you get these two wings with no windows, just, just brick, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's two paths along each side. And I, I went out and I stood on one side and I looked over and there's this man, old man, white hair, dressed completely in white from head to foot, like white tie, white shirt, white trousers, white shoes, mm -hmm. which, you know, I've seen people like that in England in the summer. They do cricket. You know, they play cricket right. like that. So it wasn't like some, you know, some. It wasn't unusual for me to to see somebody dressed all in white. And he looked. I mean, we're we're talking. It's probably about thirty feet away from me, at least. Mm -hmm. And he looked straight into my soul, and he said, "You mustn't do that anymore." Huh. Smoke, and I went. Mm, who do you think you are? I didn't say anything. <laughs> I just like, you know, put the cigarette out and went out, went back in. But that that was very interesting. I thought, I you know, and all the way across America, Americans don't like you smoking in their houses. So mm -hmm. in England, they don't care because you know they all smoke. <laughs> I mean, they smoke <laughs> at the pub, you know. Um, so all the way across America, I was like having to cut down on cigarettes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, you know, back to the school, um, little did I know that the parents all got together one evening or one day, whenever I wasn't there, and had a meeting. And they came to me and said, we would like you to stay here permanently. And if you do and run this school, we will build you a house for free wow. and you will have your own garden. Well, you know, Mrs. Little House on the Prairie, this, this was my dream come true. Mm -hmm. But a little voice inside of me said, uh-uh, no. 
Oh man. Wow. They were they were horrified when I said no. I said, I don't know why, I just can't I just can't. Wow. My last night there was November the fifth. I remember it because that's bonfire night in England. Guy Fawkes. <laughs> and I used to play guitar then. So I was playing and singing in front of the I taught them how to do bonfire night. We did candy apples is what we do in England, toffee apples and baked potatoes and so and the sing song, you know, around the fire. And that was my mm-hmm. last night. And the next day I got on a bus with two of those children whose dad lived in Colorado. I headed for I, I was for, I wanted to follow the weather. I wanted to, I was like, every time it got cold, I started moving on to somewhere else. And um, while I was on this trip across the country, I was sending clothes to some people in LA that I had met in London that were friends of Peter and Kim, who'd said to me, anytime you come to America, come visit us. And um, I was sending bundles of clothes, packages, you know, boxes of clothes to them, you know, because I was buying Mm -hmm nice American used clothing, you know, that was, right. you know, summary. Um, so uh, I took these as, as a favor to this family, the mother and father were separated to save the mother taking these two children all the way for the holidays. They were spending the holidays with their dad. Um, I guess, you know, Thanksgiving and stuff. I don't know. They were flexible because of their schooling. Um, they, the father paid for my fare, the bus fare, for me to take them. 30 hours on a bus with two children, <laughs> aged, mm. aged like four and six. Um, oh, man. And, and as we're driving through Missouri, it's at nighttime by then, I see this sign independence i'm like that's a weird name for a place (laughs) independence Mm -hmm. yeah i was crossing the plains Uh, this was my crossing the plains moment (laughs) right and then we headed up for to the the rockies and i tell you i've never seen anything like it in my life Mm -hmm. i was just i was amazed and i'll tell you why i was so amazed because when I was a child, my favorite book was Heidi that lived in the mountains with her grandfather. And all yeah. I wanted was to live in the mountains. And <laughs> here I was with these gigantic Rockies. I mean, we actually drove through and they just come, you know, they're just like there. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, yeah. from somebody that's used to living on a flat land, you know, it's like, <laughs> wow. I mean, we have rolling hills and everything, but, you know. Um, I think I've been at Mount Snowdon in Wales, but that's about it. Um, anyway, it was it was incredible. So it had been arranged. These people that I was staying with knew this guy in Colorado, right near Aspen, actually, a place called Snowmass, mm-hmm. that um, built log homes for a living. He had his own business. He was a bachelor, lived on his own up in the mountains in his little log house. And um, said I could go be his housekeeper for a while. So I, of course, I wouldn't do that if I was a member of the church, you know, live alone with the man in the house. But um, so I cooked for him and he had a little wood stove 
as well as a, as well as regular stoves. So I would cook on this wood stove. I was in my element because it's like just give me give me the natural life, and I'm so happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I cooked for him, and then the time came to leave there because it snowed. It was oh, we went to um, Thanksgiving dinner with friends of John Denver. Nice. Uh, not so nice. Oh, really? Not so nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I may have been a latter day hippie in those days, you know, kind of <laughs> working in this liberal kind of environment of macrobiotic cooking. But in my heart, I was truly conservative and very, mm-hmm. very, um, I mean, I wear long sleeves all the time now, summer and winter, you know, pretty much. I was a very modest person. I, you know, I didn't show my body off to people. Um, but when I got to this house, the the woman of the house was standing in her underwear cooking food at the counter. Oh, I wow. was so shocked. I didn't even know where. Oh. <laughs> you know, I was just. I'm like, oh, and I I could feel myself like just disappearing. I didn't want even want to be there. Anyways, mm. it was a very weird day, and and they all there was a, they had a they had a what's it a, a sauna. They're all mm. into saunas, you know, and then jumping in the rig, river after. And I declined. I didn't do that because who knows what they were going to be showing. You know? Yeah. Like, no, thank you. I'll just stay in the house. Um, very bizarre. So I ended up leaving there. It's it snowed really, really deep. Uh, one night when we one morning we woke up and it was like up to here in snow and I decided it's time to go. So um I flew this is my first flight from Denver Airport to um LA. Now, and this guy that I've been staying with paid my fare for the housekeeping wow. work I've done for him. Um so and I was on when I was on the plane, I ended up being next to a famous person. I can't remember who it was now, but it was some guy that had been on American television um, was in the was in the plane. And I can't remember his name now. <laughs> um, so I, I was told that from Denver to Salt Lake was a wonderful train ride scenic train ride and that's what I really wanted to do but then I remembered I'd been sending all these clothes to these people in LA so I didn't have any choice so I went down to LA uh, flew there and um, they picked me up at the airport they lived in the right next to the first house ever built in San Fernando Valley Um, and these people were uh, they were macrobiotic and so I cooked for them. So I cooked for them right through Christmas, January, and the first week of February. And um, they were uh, training to be trainers in an organization called the EST Training. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm-mm. Heart Seminar Training. Um, what I found out later on was that the church warned members against it so these people were highly involved in this and they had two young men staying in their house as boarders I don't know what they were but anyway so I cooked for for them and um I there came a point where I had an uh, an emotional breakdown Mm -hmm. 
because of this leaving this man behind in London, you know, this yeah. engagement breaking up. And, uh, and so um, Art, his name was, he said, so when are you going to do the training? And I went, oh, I'm going to do it right now. So they signed me up to do this training. And this is a training um, you definitely don't want your children to do. Um, it's it's uh, two weekends and I guess a midweek day. And you go in and you're told all this truth. You can't have a watch. You don't know what time it is. You know, you're, you're there for hours and hours and you're, you're deprived of everything from food to water, you know, and, um, and you have this experience and you, and you end up getting it and you become like enlightened, you know? And, um, yeah, I was, I, I was all in after the first weekend. In fact, I was told that I was a star of this program. <laughs> so like, Oh dear. After I joined the church, I realized what a big mistake it had been, but, um, wow. So I got, you know, I got kind of got involved in that while I was there. Um, and then um, February the 5th came, which I, I remember the date because it's my dad's birthday. Um, I flew from their place uh, in L.A. up to um, San Francisco, which is where the other boy was that I was writing to. Um, so he said I could come stay with him while I waited for the mountains to open, you know, in May. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> this was the only time I paid airfare. It was $36, $39 to fly from L.A. to uh, – that was the only time I paid a fare in the whole of my trip. Um, so there I was. I'd crossed America cooking for people. I ended up going up and, and doing some cooking for him. But the thing is, he was supposed to meet me at the airport, and we missed each other. So I ended up having to get a bus, and he was living in Mill Valley, in in the um, north of uh, San Francisco. Um, so um, I got to his house, and as soon as I met him, I did not like the look of him, and he didn't like me either. So this was going to be tricky. And um, I found out why I didn't like him, because he was completely immoral. <laughs> um and um, I was, you know, sleeping on his couch and he was having girls in and out all the time. And it was just awful. So um, I, and I didn't even know all that. But the, the day after I arrived, I took the bus back to San Francisco, knowing that the Est headquarters is right there in a very plush office building. And I, I was told that they had a big bulletin board. You could put a free free ad up on a file card. So I took a little pen and, and a card and I wrote that I wanted, I needed um, some work and a place to stay. Now, I didn't have a work permit, so I was illegal. <laughs> I was just on a visitor's visa. But I just needed something to do. And I just said I would do house cleaning, you know. Um, so... I put the card in that building and I didn't get any response for a few couple of weeks. And then I got a phone call and the voice at the other end said to me, Oh my gosh, Deb Turner, what are you doing here? This was a girl called Jill from New Zealand 
that had run the preschool in London in that basement that I provided Mm -hmm. for. Okay. And she had stayed with me for a week before she flew to San Francisco. I saw her off at the airport. I never thought I'd see her again. She was traveling the world. She was 23 Mm -hmm. years old. And she said, what in the world are you doing here? And I said, well, my engagement with him, this guy broke up. And and in fact, what I told my friends when I left London, these were my words. I am going to change my life if it's the last thing I do. Those are my parting words to my friends. And that's what happened. (laughs) Little did I know. Um, So I said, what are you doing here? And she said, well, um, she was in down the road in a place called Court in Madeira, which is just a few miles away from Mill Valley. Um, I am staying with this family and um, I'm helping them in their business. Um, I live with them and um, they're Mormons and I've joined their church. <laughs> and I'm like going, no, no, back. <laughs> what? You've done what? Now, this girl was into Est in London and tried to get me involved in London. I said, no way. I'm not a joiner. I don't join stuff like that. Mm -hmm. She had had met these people in the church, and they were ex-Estes. They they had been in the Est program. They had been been big helpers in that program. Um, And um, she had gone into that building with some dry cleaning for one of the trainers and saw my card on the board. Huh. What are the awesome? So I know there's, this is why I mean led by the spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. So um, she, I didn't see her. Uh, it was about six weeks till I saw her and then she ca- she called me and asked me to go to lunch with the with this woman that she she lived with and they took me to lunch in Mill Valley and I found out I have a lot in common common with that woman I was actually you know 28 so and the woman was like 31 something like that and and mm-hmm. Jill was 22 so I think we I had a little bit more in common with with her um and we just got along you know So I went back, you know, to what I was doing, a little house cleaning here and there, you know. And um, uh, one day I just just couldn't handle any more of being in this place. I packed my bag and I put it outside and I called Jill's house, meaning to speak to Jill, to ask her if I could just come stay for a week until I found something else. And the mother answered. And she said, I explained what was going on. And she said, we'll be right over. They came over, her and her husband in their van. I'm sitting in the back, driving to their place. She turns to me and she says, well, I have to tell you something. We don't drink, we don't smoke. And we go to church on Sundays. And if you want to live in our house, you've got to do the same. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm going, what? Back, you know, just like, whoa, what are we getting into? And um, that was the beginning 
Oh, you never guess what he was, her husband. The ward mission leader. <laughs> <laughs> so they saw oh, me nice. coming. Um, and um, they taught me how to pray in the mornings. I didn't know you could pray in the morning. I only prayed at night. I did pray, by the way, in my own life at night. I didn't know who God was, really. And I didn't, I didn't feel a close connection to him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to just backtrack to when I was 14 for a minute because I had a bad day, a bad experience with my mother. And I ran up to my bedroom crying and I knelt on the floor by my bed and I said, God, please help me. There has to be more than this. Please just lead me to the truth. That's what I said at 14. Mm-hmm. Here I was at 28, and they taught me how to pray in the mornings. So I was sleeping on the big couch. You had this big, big sectional in the living room. Um, they were very minimalist people, so it's kind of the main thing in the room. And I would... Um, push the put the cushions on the floor and sleep there at night very comfortable and I would get up before they got up in the morning to pray and um they started you know teaching me to pray over meals and um and you know the the correct way to pray and these and thous and things like that and um and then one day um the mother loaned me a book and it was the um book by Stephen R. Covey, Spiritual Roots of Human Relations. Okay. I don't know. And I that book just spoke to me. I loved that book. So because I would uh, and I was going to church with them, but it was I mean I thought the people at church were weird, frankly. Because um, <laughs> I was the weird one, but um they were probably thinking the same thing about me. Um uh but I was um I was kind of drinking in, like I was hearing them talking to each other in a way I'd never heard people talk to each other with respect. Uh, I'd hear her talking on the phone with respect and caring and love and, you know, friendship and all that. This was all very new to me. Um, So I was listening and I was watching and I was praying. And, And then... She loaned me another book, and it was the biography of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And as I was reading that book, I got the strongest impression. It wasn't any words, but the what the Spirit was trying to tell me was, if you don't do something about this, you're going to regret it forever. Wow. That got my attention, and I just, I just, that, that, I just went. Wait a minute! I'm 28 years old, and I've never heard of this. What? I, 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 I am Mrs. Know All. I've read everything. You know, I mean, how could this be that I didn't know about this? Mm -hmm. And as I am learning all this from these people i'm getting the impression and of course i saw the first vision movie you know they showed me that yeah and i just got the impression that i'd heard all this before Hmm. i knew i knew this somehow and um 
the, there was a couple of young people working for them in their business. They had a they had a house cleaning business cleaning for um, millionaires that were in very big posh houses. Um, very very detailed work, and I worked with them, not getting paid, but just you know for my keep. And I cooked for all these people as well. By the way, I was cooking there for them. <laughs> um, and um, one day, Heidi, who worked in the company, we we were traveling in her car to a job. She had a little Beetle car, and um, she she just said, I, "I'm I'm I'm going to be baptized." She'd been listening. She can you know she her she hadn't shown any interest before before I came to the house. Mm-hmm. And then I got interested, and then this other guy, Paul Wolf's work. All three of us got interested. Um, in one of these morning prayers, and I, I was just about to get on the floor to pray this one morning. Um, I was just about to ask again because I kept asking: Is is jo- was Joseph Smith a prophet? Is this all true? Um, and before I could even get the words out of my mouth. I felt a hand on my right shoulder and there was nobody in the room. And the voice said to me, Deb, it's your turn now. And that was when I decided I was, you know, going to be baptized. So I told them that night that I'd had this experience. So that was it. You know, the missionaries came in and um, I was the first one in the font. And that was May 22nd, 1982. And my visa ran out in June, end of June, because I'd had it renewed at at New Year. You can renew it once. And, you know, so I'd been there since August in America. And this was the end of June. And they had a friend who was a lawyer uh, that tried to get me help to stay, but he just couldn't swing it for me to stay there. And um, I, the people that baptized me uh, flew me back to England. They paid for me to go back. So another fare paid. Um, And I had nowhere to go. So I went to my parents up in Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't lived there for 10 years, and I wasn't welcome. Now, I'd written to my parents and told them I was baptized. I was shocked at my mother's response. She said, finally, you've found what you've been looking for your whole life. Really? I was shocked. I was so shocked. Wow. But it was a different story when I got back to them because nobody mm-hmm. wanted nobody wanted me there. They didn't want anything to do with me. They uh, All my dad said was, oh, they just want you for your money. <laughs> hmm. And um, I had one conversation. I was at my sister Elizabeth's house. She's the older sister. Um, I was my very youngest sister, who was only 12 when I joined the church. Uh, she, I was 16 years older than her. Um, I was talking to her one day, and she, she, I mentioned the temple, and she said, oh, what's the, what's the temple about for? And I told her about it's where people go to get sealed together to their families. And my sister Elizabeth suddenly was here listening to this conversation like in the background somewhere flew into the room and went absolutely berserk swore at me and told me to get out of her house and never come back Mm. and that was the end of that 
And I, in the, in the seven months I lived in, I stayed in Leeds. I lived in seven different places. And I just, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get established there. I was, I started cleaning houses, um, but I just couldn't get a foothold. And I went to the ward, you know, and people were really nice and fellowshiped me and they took me to church and really nice. Uh, made some good friends there initially. Um, but one day I was praying about my situation and the Lord told me to go back to London. Mm. So I went back to London and uh, I actually joined the Institute and it didn't take long. Uh, within a year, I was the Institute secretary. <laughs> and um, yeah, that was that was my boss saving me from a life of because I went back to, to typing. I was in a typing pool in London. I was suicidal again. I'm like, I can't do this. And he and I applied for this job, and um, there were there were ten other candidates. And he said to me, I don't know why the Lord wants you in this job, but you're the least qualified for it. But here we go. Wow. So, um, so I was in there, and I was in the North London ward initially because it where where I lived and um one year to the day of my baptism I went knocking on the bishop's door I want to go to the temple and he said no immediately no just no and I said why he goes I don't know I feel like it's not time yet I was so crushed Aww. so Fast forward, I'd, um, I was living with this um, woman. She, she was a macrobiotic, loved what I did. at the. She knew me from the East West Center before I went to America. And she invited me to live in her house for free if I cleaned her house. Mm -hmm. So I, I did that. And um, um, while I was at her house, um, I had um, a conversation with my bishop on the phone. And uh, after, as, as, as we were wrapping up the conversation, he said, I think it's time now for you to get ready to go to the temple. This was like the following year. This was January, the following year. Mm -hmm. Well, remember that revelation I received when I was six years old that says, when you're 30, everything will be all right. Mm -hmm. I was 30 years old when I was endowed in the temple. Wow. And I can tell you, that was the best thing I could have ever done. Because wow. I love the temple. It just all made sense to me. And I ended up working in the Institute, and I met Elder Eyring. The last, really? night, the last night I worked there, he was the head of church education then. He was like 55 years old. He was a slightly <laughs> young thing then. And um, he came into my office. I, I, I had prepared food for him and the guy, Dave Cook, who was the head of the, who was like the area director of England. And they'd come from Solihull, the great and spacious building, they call it up there. Um, you know, the church office building. And he, they came down and they were late and, it was all very frantic because Elder Eyring was speaking to the class and uh, the class was packed. 
and he started speaking and this girl started crying uh, for some reason he'd hit a nerve so I had to pull her out of there and and comfort her and she was sitting in my boss's office which had the the connecting door um to the classroom and uh, we're listening through the door you know and well this is my last night I was I was leaving the job at that point and uh, I'd been asked to say the closing prayer and I came into the room at the end when they said you know they said amen and I just that prayer the spirit was so strong in that room that prayer just like flew out of my mouth I didn't even need to think I, I remember it just so vividly um and so I'm when everybody had gone home and I'm, you know, I'm like wrapping up the office, uh, putting things away. And the guys are all sitting in the, in my boss's office with their feet on the desk and their ties loose and talking. And then elder Irene came in and shut my door. It was a glass door. He walked in, shut the door behind him and put his hand out to me to shake it. And he said, sister Turner, you are wonderful. <laughs> and so are you. I could guess to say, um, but I was so touched that he. And I guess my boss had been singing my praises, maybe telling him about my background and what I'd come from, and all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, knew my history. Wow. So I can tell you that forty-one years later, I am more devoted to this church than ever. I know it's all true. I've prayed about every single aspect from its history to its doctrine, you name it. I've prayed about it. I've studied that Book of Mormon over and over and over. And I, I, of all the books I have read in my life, it's the only one that I've ever read more than once. And I've read it dozens of times and I never get tired of it. And I can tell you, that it is truly the anchor to the person's soul and to the activity in this church. That when you stay with that book, that is what that is what solidifies everything. Mm -hmm. I love the Bible, but I'll tell you, when I read the Book of Mormon, and I found it hard to read because of the names and places, and you know, it was all different language type thing, but as as time went by, I saw the I saw the relationship between the early church and the latter day church, and how it all just fit together like this mm. massive jigsaw puzzle. And um, I absolutely know that it is true. And I've been I've been rejected by my entire family. I've lost my home. I've lost my country. I lost everything to come to America. The Lord told me to come to BYU. And he opened the way for me to come. I was married within a few months of coming to BYU. There was nobody to marry in England. And I married an Englishman. <laughs> um, and I'm telling you, there is, there is nothing outside of this church worth wasting your life on. Nothing. This is it, as far as I'm concerned. And I have spent my last 41 years trying to help people to understand that this is real. I'm talking about people in the church because I haven't had a lot of, I've, I've done some 
you know, missionary work. I brought a few people into the church. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think my mission has been to help the existing church members to stay in the church and to know that there is nothing out there worth having. This is it. And Elder Holland said it best. He said it best. He said, the church means everything to me. Mm-hmm. And that, when he said that, I'm like, yeah, that's how I feel. Good for you. Because um, it does. It means the church, I I am the church. This I I I'm not just a part of the church. It's like and and I'm not just a, I'm not just a daughter of, of God either. I I belong to him. Mm-hmm. I'll do anything. You know, and my life is not it's not easy at all. I'm divorced. I've got three children. I've had, I had to raise almost all by myself. And it's I've had I've had t- my mental illness. So much opposition. I had a sister a few years ago that that, the, that very youngest one that was 12, I told you about. She got into mm-hmm. a few years ago. And she made all these wonderful noises about wanting to be reconnected with me and everything. And her whole agenda was to destroy my faith. And she tried to buy it from me with money. She tried to, knowing I was in a difficult financial position, she tried to, to, to buy my testimony with money. And I, mm-hmm. I told her no, and I had to turn away from her again. And the mm-hmm. vitriol that came out of that, and she's now in her 50s. So, um, yeah, I've lost everything and everyone. And so when I hear people whining and bellyaching about what they're, you know, what they don't, you know, don't understand or, you know, this, this and that and the other, it's like, please, you know, just think of what the Savior gave. Look at all that he did for us. How can we turn away from him? And I, I, I so feel for when, for when he said how I would have gathered you as a hen gathered her chickens and you would not, because that's what happened with my family. That's what ha- all my friends turned against me. When I went back to London and I reconnected with all those friends after I joined the church, they didn't want to know me. Mm. Wow. So I lost everything. And that's why this is, it's, the church is everything to me. The gospel is everything. The plan of salvation, it just makes sense to me. It's, it's the, it, this is the most powerful thing that you could even imagine. Nobody could make this up. I know Joseph Smith didn't write that book because I've written two books, and I have done a total of 21 edits on those two books, and they're still rubbish. Wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I can't believe what he did in 65 days. There's no way that this, I'm a college graduate, you know, there's no way. So I absolutely know that it's, it's true and real and exciting. That's the, that's what I love about it. It's if people only knew what this was, they would crawl across the plains on their hands and knees to find it. And my family didn't want it. And, And I, I'm now the registered genealogist. And I've found out a lot of things about my family, and it's a mm-hmm. very cool group. And um, but I know why I'm here. 
And I think that's I think that's the important thing in this life is you have to know why you're here. You have to know where you came from and you have to know where you're going. And your mm-hmm. bottom line is you have to know who you are. And that's what the gospel has taught me. I didn't know God was my father. I knew he was Jesus's father, but I had no clue. When I found out he was my father, oh, my gosh, I rejoiced because of what I'd been through. child. <laughs> so wow. anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Deb. I I think that, um, you know, it. there's so much to it, you know, like so many, many, many miracles and mighty miracles in your story that kind of kept pushing you along, pushing you along, pushing you along. And I feel like if, if we were all to sit back and we were to look at our own lives, we would probably see that that's the way that Heavenly Father works with almost all of us. You know, I like he has does. all these little tiny miracles kind of weaved in to make this big, huge miracle for us that brings us to where we're supposed to be. And so well, I'm remember? very proud of you for being rebellious. Was it Elder Iring who said um, to keep a journal and to write where you've seen the hand of God in your mm-hmm. life that day? Um, I I think it's much more common than you think. I think I'm grateful that I've been given this story mm-hmm. because it makes it very clear that there was somebody involved beyond me. Yeah, you know, this is very mm-hmm. clear to me. This is not just some random happening. You know, um, right? That you know, and and I had an experience when I, after I joined the church in those first few months, I was in an attic room in Leeds, staying in this house where I was renting a room. It was a bare room with just a little single bed and a, and a wardrobe and a chair. And it was just dire. And, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't afford anything else. And, uh, and it was right in the attic. It was right at the top of the house. It's like a four story house. And um, I didn't, I didn't hear, I couldn't hear the doorbell from where I was up up there. And one day in tears with the Book of Mormon, leaning on my bed, just didn't understand the Book of Mormon at that point. I'd been in the church like, what, a few months, three months, something. And uh, it was all just overwhelming. And... um, I just started crying and I just said, Heavenly Father, please send somebody. Please send somebody. I'm so lonely. And I did not hear the doorbell. But 15 minutes later, there was a knock on my bedroom door. And standing in the doorway was the Relief Society president. And she said, I was just sitting down to watch Coronation Street, which was a soap opera over there (laughs) going for 50 years now I can't believe it um she said I was just sitting down to watch Coronation Street when the spirit said go see Deb that's when I knew that God could see through the roof a person praying and send somebody to help them so I know he's there absolutely I know he's there and I tell you, through all the trials, I still suffer because my health is really a problem now. Um, all I do is just pray more and more deeply and listen to more podcasts and more scriptures and and just try to fill my life 
with the best of the best mm-hmm. to help me because I am very alone here. I'm far away from my children, far away from family. Um, nobody in England cares about me. Um, so here I am, and uh, it's still true. And all I can say is that whatever you're suffering in this world, you can't let go of that iron rod. You have to keep hold of that iron rod because you're going to suffer anyway, but you're going to suffer more when you don't have that. I think mm-hmm. so. Life is hard. Life is suffering. We are we are truly in the last days here, and this is no picnic. But uh, we stay hold of that rod, and uh, keep that keep. I think that relationship with God is absolutely paramount mm-hmm. to our survival in these last days. This is it, and and this is really is it. I keep I've told people for forty years this isn't a. This isn't a dress rehearsal, you know. This is it. Yeah, yeah. We are here to prepare to meet God, and it's gonna. It takes a lot of suffering and opposition and trials, because who are we? We are supposed to be like the Savior in every way, Mm -hmm. and He suffered for us. Are we not willing to suffer for Him in return? And I, so I don't, you know. While I've lost everything, I have gained everything. I've gained everything. My family has no idea. Well, they do now because my parents are in heaven. I've done the work for them in the temple and they're learning. They know. They know Mm -hmm. who I am now. That's the good thing. They know I'm not this rebel. I'm not this person that was (laughs) trying to thwart them. I was trying to help them. And so hopefully they will, you know, feel that beyond the veil. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they do. Mm Well, Deb, you, you're, you're an inspiration and I love your testimony. And Thank I, you. You know, I think you're, you have su- one of the reasons why you have such a strong testimony is because you've been through so many challenges and adversities in your life. It's mm-hmm. just helped you to make your testimony even that stronger. And when you say it, you know, like I can feel it that it's true and in your every fiber of your soul and, and fire in the belly. Is it what president Hinckley said? My son, yeah. Jake, a few years ago said to me on the phone, he said, mom, I don't know anyone that's been through what you've been through. Mm-hmm. He said, he actually said to me, you're going to get the biggest mansion in heaven, mom. <laughs> I don't want a mansion. I just want a cottage. <laughs> <laughs> a little cottage with a garden. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, if you have a know. mansion, you can invite everybody to come hang out with you. Yeah, you can cook for everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm an introvert. I only like people in small groups. Oh. <laughs> I'd much rather have people to dinner than like being a crowd, you know. There I'm, you a, I'm what they call an INFJ personality. Yeah. It's the, the most introverted of introverts. Oh. Well, but, we are very yeah. grateful for, for you coming out of your shell today for us. Well, I'm not and, that much in my shell. I mean, yeah. I love people. <laughs> Small doses. There you go. Yeah. And I have no, some great friends. That- my, my friends are my family, and I have many people around this country that I consider kindred spirits that mm-hmm. I know I'll know forever. And I think the gospel can do that with people that aren't your family. They yeah, can, absolutely. They can give you that 
sense of belonging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm excited to hear the, the second half of your story. So yeah, to yeah just leave that as a hook for, for the next <laughs> episode, but it, what a, what an amazing story so far. Um, mm-hmm. and God's definitely been in your life, even when you haven't been able to see him, but it's, it's definitely obvious now, especially looking back. So well, I can see, sharing. I can see there was a, somebody gave a talk. I can't remember who it was recently in conference where a child, they, were, they went to a home as, as ministers and there was children that were neglected or something. And, uh, and, and they were taught the, 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 I think it was an apostle said, um, you know, they will be okay. It will mm-hmm. You know, there'll be, we can't do anything for them now, but they will be okay. You know, this is, and and I just, I just have a testimony that, and I will talk more about this in the next thing, uh, the next session is that um, there really is a reason why we're in the family that we're in. Yeah. There is a reason, and I know what that reason is, and I found out what it is. So, next time. I'll tell you. That's right. Next time. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Deb. We really appreciated your story and your testimony. I appreciate you guys. And I think you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, thank you guys too for tuning in today and for, you know, going along Deb's journey with us. We really appreciate you guys as listeners. And um, we just want to encourage you guys to do your five second missionary work. And to click that share button, make sure that you get this story out to others who might need to hear some of the things that Deb talked about today. Um, Let's see. And of course, if you guys have a story that you'd like to share, be sure to reach out to us. You can either email us at latterdaylights at gmail.com or you can comment below, find us on Facebook, head over to latterdaylights.com. There's a form there that you can fill out. There's lots of ways to get a hold of us. So Feel free to reach out just like Deb did and let us know what your story is. Um, With that, I think that's all we have for today. Is that right, Scott? Yeah. Thanks again, Deb. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks everyone for watching and we will see you next week. Thanks. Sounds good. See ya. Bye.